but... Hi, everybody. Hold on. This has happened before. There we go. The problem of being tall. You have to get it in your face. There. Okay. <laughs> Welcome. It is awesome to see everybody here. And I'm going to take my glasses off so I don't get nervous, so I can't see you. You're a beautiful blur. So, this is my 27th year in this program. And I came in when I was 20 years old, and I came at the suggestion of a therapist. When I told her I wanted to be around people like me, she sent me to Al-Anon, and I didn't understand why. I kind of think I thought gay people, but I didn't, but whatever. I got what I needed. And when I first started the rooms, it was a room full of grandmothers and great-grandmothers. And those women loved me. And when I started Al-Anon, they would um, they'd say the Lord's Prayer, and then they would hug each other. But if you told them no, they would respect it. And I'd never heard of that kind of a boundary before. But, you know, when I think back, that kind of set the tone for me learning about boundaries. Now, I grew up in a family, you know, the family disease of alcoholism, as many of us have. Both my parents drank. Both my parents grew uh, more mentally ill the, the way when their drinking increased. Um, my one of the way, well, the way that I dealt with it as a kid was that I developed an eating disorder because it had to go somewhere. And the crazier things got at home, the more the more I started acting out in that. My father is an untreated Vietnam vet who came from a crazy family. Isn't that interesting? My mother was, uh, she came from an abusive household as well. And I think they got married thinking it was going to get better if the two of them came together. That's my, my theory. Um, my, my, the house was, it was an abusive household in many ways. My parent, my father, one of the, my earliest memories, he was, the neighbors from across the street were um, over playing cards, and I reached over to tickle him just with my index finger. And he hauled off and punched me like you would punch a full-grown man. And I was six years old. And I remember being, feeling so ashamed that I needed to go and cry, and my mother wouldn't let me get up. And so I felt so ashamed that I had to sit in front of these people and cry because my arm was throbbing. You know, that, I still remember that. I still remember what it felt like. But that's my earliest memory of when the crazy started. My parents went on to do some pretty crazy things as their drinking increased. My father worked in a uh, factory and would go to work drunk. Now, how he did not harm himself, he did once, um, is, is a miracle. My mother, um, as, when I was about fifth, in fifth grade, her, her drinking spiraled. And that was the time that she started, she, her mental illness really started to come out. 
and when she drank, she would do some really cruel things. One of them, so she would start drinking after my father would go to work, and we would have to mix her drinks. Now, how does a kid know how to mix drinks? But, and if there wasn't enough alcohol in the drink, she'd get pissed off. And I can remember plenty of times when she, would, she did some fucked up shit. She would have us, you know, there was this one day that she'd sort of was, she'd sort of fallen asleep and woke back up and she thought one of us had passed gas, you know, major, you know, issue. And so she made us both take an, a handful of laxatives and we had to stand there until the inevitable was about to happen. And I don't think she remembered it. There was another day that the summer after my sixth grade year is when it was the worst. And she took a BB gun and started shooting at me. There was another, many other incidents that, but just to give you an idea that it got, it went there. You know, as a kid, you know, as I've done inventories and looked back, you know, I wasn't telling school about home or home about school. So neither knew, but they thought that I had a problem. I don't think the school realized what was going on at home. And that only increased the older I got. When I got into the sixth grade, where, you know, we switched schools, we're in this new school, and that's when my aloneness, my isolation really became huge. And that's when I really started skipping meals. Um, I just... I truly believed at that point I was a terrible person. You know, again, with the, with the advantage of hindsight, I look back and I see how alone and isolated I really was. We lived out in the country. We lived on five, a five-acre plot of land. There was nobody around, and it was quiet. Um, but it was, it was, you know, that was the setup. And my parents, their drinking spiraled, their, their behavior got crazy. My sister, who's six years younger than I am, was really the golden child. She was, my mother had had a couple of pregnancies that, did, that didn't, that ended very quickly. And so she was the last one and she, they, she made it full term. And here was this girl. And she was treated as the golden child, like this kid could do no wrong, and she was a little tyrant, and, and I loved her. But the trick was, is my mother's disease got deeper. Um, she, my mother would include her in when I was getting beat, when I was getting hit, and so there were times when I would be screaming at, crying and screaming at her to stop, and she wouldn't until I would bleed. That's when she would stop. There were other times when my mother liked to wrestle. And so when the wrestling would start, she'd start getting very, it was, it was a beating. She was beating me. Um, and my sister would be playing with it. It would be joining in. And so it confused that relationship. We're supposed to be brother and sister. But it really changed that dynamic. Um, you know, a lot of stuff happened, a lot of stuff that's really crazy. But by the time I graduated high school, I was, I was shut down. 
and I didn't, I wouldn't have known to use that word because I just wasn't aware. I didn't know how to live in the world because the, the messages I kept getting were that I was stupid, that I was doing it wrong, that I was not good enough, that I, my father didn't feel comfortable with me sending me out into the world. He said these things to me. And I really, I just, that's all I ever heard. I thought it was true. And my, I remember my first day of college, I was petrified. Now, I lived in a very a rural area. Driving into the next big city to go to school was terrifying. And I had to do it all alone. That was the other thing that happened as I look back. My parents couldn't teach me how to do something. I had to figure it out how to do it on my own. And somehow, um, Somehow, I, I started reading books. I went to this massive library at school and started reading, and I got a scholarship that I did not know I was going to get. That's how I got to go. And the counselors at school um, applied for me because I didn't think there was anything available to me. So, you know, when I started Al-Anon in 1992, I barely... I almost grew up feral. That's what I, my perspective today as I look back. I was almost feral. I mean, I knew how to brush my teeth. I knew to get a haircut. And that was about it. So coming into these rooms, um, I did it because I was told to. Somebody told me to. And my mother, my parents had convinced me that I was the, I was the problem in the family. And I believed them. And that, I carried that for many years until I understood to drop it. It doesn't belong to me. And it took a lot of work in Al-Anon. You know, I went to Al-Anon in Michigan. I went to Al-Anon in Boston. But in Boston, it was different because I was far away from my family. And that was the time that I really, I started becoming an adult. Now, this was in 1998. So I'd been in, in the rooms for six years. But when I, when I got to Boston, I just, I, I started becoming an adult. And I would go to rooms, I couldn't talk. All I could do was look at the floor. Um, because I was, I was broken. I was truly, truly broken. And, you know, I would go to meetings, I couldn't talk. Because I was, the, the sense of shame I carried was huge. And I could never tell anybody because that's not what I learned. I'm not supposed to talk. It wasn't until around 2000 that I met my very best friend. His name is Wayne. He was here a few years ago. And his story was very similar to mine. And he was the first one who saw my mother and my sister. They came out to Boston to see us, to see me. And Wayne happened to say, you must be so proud of your, of your, of Rob. And they both looked at me and said, you don't know what he's really like. And I was so used to it that I, I put my head down. Again, the shame was right there. And I didn't understand why later when we talked, he was furious. I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you upset? So that started, that moment, that really, that was the first time anybody saw it happen. And over many, over, over 20 years now, 
he and I have talked. We just there's a deep friendship. He lives in New York City now. But those conversations, someone who wanted to engage with me, wanted to talk with me, I started coming alive. And, you know, he was the first one who, I would, I would wear clothes that were too big because I had been told that I was fat. So that's what I believed. I thought I was this. And so the clothes I would buy would hang off me because that's what I thought I was. And he took me to Banana Republic on Newberry Street and said, try these on. And they, they, I think what happened is that they fit. And I was mortified. Oh, no, 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 they're too tight, they're too tight, they're too tight. He's like, no, Rob, those fit. And I'm like wanting to peel them off. That would, he, he was the one who gave me permission to like buying clothes. And it, I still, we still, I still joke with him about that day. I hated him because they were too tight. No, they fit. Big difference. And you know, after a few years, he would move to New York City because that was his dream, and we we stayed in contact. But the momentum for me and program kept going. You know, I started going to more meetings. I, he and I would talk. Nine Eleven happened. I was in Boston that day. I will never forget that day. I am still scarred. Um, it was one of those days that time just stopped. Um, but he was there calling me, do you want to come up to the house? That man loves me, and I still quite don't understand it. I don't. But I know that I love him. And I love, we were talking earlier today, Justin, I was sending him pictures of these fabulous shoes, by the way, and this wonderful brooch, you know. I know, right? And it's on this shirt because it was dragging my sweater down. We can't have that. But he was here in the moment. We were laughing about it. Have you thought about waiting? I'm not, I'm not thinking about it. I'm just going to get up and talk. But that's how close we are. And it's amazing to hear his recovery and my recovery and what we're both working on. And he's He's doing amazing things. But, you know, my family's still crazy. My mother passed away in 2014, and she passed away on the longest day of the year, June 21st. And if you knew my mother, that was her sense of humor. Like, she wanted to make it long as last as she possibly could. And, you know, what was interesting, I had a sponsor back in Boston, Lynn. She was, a, she was gay, and she was warm, and she was tender. And the first time I had a flashback, you know, I, was, I, I felt like I was looking through these eyes, but I was not in this body, and I, I thought I was losing my mind. I was terrified. And I told her, and she said, Rob, what you just described sounds like a flashback. And that would, after those, that initial, I would wake up in the night and feel my body being touched in all these sorts of ways. I was terrified. You know, it, and I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know that there were others out there who could help me. Because I had been taught, I have to do it myself. No one will help me. 
I made myself suffer badly because I didn't know. I didn't have the ability to ask for help still. You know, that was a, that was a scary time. And it just was what it was. I did the best I could, as all of us do. We do the best we can with what we've got. You know, it, I met my husband in 2002, and I was walking. He wanted, at the time, Match.com. You know, you could chat with people online. I know, right? How cliche, Match.com, really? And he wanted to meet, and I was marching in the Pride Parade with this organization, and I'm like, fine, let's meet at the, you know, the Starbucks on Tremont Street. So, you know, I was feeling it that day, and I have these really high boots, and I wore these really short shorts, like, work it. And my job was to hand out condoms. (laughs) And I'm glad I wasn't as self-aware as I am now. Oh, and I was, you know, giving him out. And the last one I gave from my basket was to a really hot Boston cop. Those mothers are freaking hot as hell. And I gave it to him with a smile. And so I walk over to down Tr- Tremont Street, and I walk in, and that was the first time I really got noticed, and I noticed it. I opened the doors, and every head went, as I stood there, and I got that surge of, Wow. And here's this man sitting grinning. That was how we met. And so he's fun. He's an engineer. He, I mean, he thinks code. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> yeah, enough. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother talk. But um, he kept calling me. And I didn't, you know, I'd tried to date before, but I I couldn't because I was terrified. I was terrified of getting hurt. But he was easy. You know, we spoke code and I could kind of break a feeling down so he could get it. You know, ticker tape kind of thing. And it, we we ended up getting married and, and life was fun. And, you know, I had a couple of different jobs. I moved up. Um, and work for some, I started working for my mother. You know those lessons that come along that you just want to look at the sky and say, right here, God, right there. And I started getting abused by these, by, first it was a physician, and then the next job, it was someone who was nice in the beginning, and then she turned on me. And she... It got so bad. Now, at that time, I was, I asked for a mentor, which I had and used. I was in training to be a therapist at school. I was using, going to the rooms, and it still wasn't enough to help me get through the time when she was determined to fire me. She ostracized me. It was a hard year. And by the time, and we had this big um, institutional, uh, Thing we had to do and after that she handed me two two page documents that I had to sign she'd written me up and it had been so hard so many things had gone on and I looked at her without any feeling and said you know this makes sense I've been contemplating suicide which was true I didn't care that she knew 
and she stopped. She burst into tears and she stopped bullying me. About a year and a half after that, we moved out to California. My husband got laid off. A company called him. They flew him out to San Francisco. He said yes, and I arrived. <laughs> and a different level of work started out here. I took a job, seemed well, because I was starting to be aware, there's a pattern going on here. What is this about? And guess what? I started working at a company. This woman was like, really cool, we're talking. And I had to leave home early one day because the, the cleaning ladies couldn't get the garage door to close. And I think, I, I, thinking someone would walk into the house and be like, I need to go. And that was the thing that triggered this woman to start mistreating me. And I'd been doing enough work, I'd, been, I'd done some step work, and I knew I'm repeating something here. And so I did a lot of praying about it, asked to be guided, and then it came very clear to me one day, I'm working for my mother again. And I decided to leave. That was amazing. So the next job I took, the director was awesome, the manager was awesome, I'm like, all right. Everything was great. And then the director left and a new one came in. And guess what happened? I started working for my mother again. Only this one was vindictive. And she started doing some really bad stuff at work and then she targeted me. Little did she know I belonged to a big community. <laughs> and I got an attorney because it got that bad. At that point... Um, I was out of work for almost two years because I couldn't find a job. You know why I couldn't find a job? Because I thought so little of myself it was coming through in every interview that I went to. I had to do some more work. Don't you hate it when your sponsor says that? That's the worst. I think you need to do some step work and you're like, and you can sit right here. <laughs> Said it. But they were right, and that, at that time, I had never, it never occurred to me to get angry at my mother. It had never occurred to me that I was t just rageful at her. I didn't know. But what I did know, it was coming out sideways, because one of the things that, this weird quirks I had, is that I wanted to grab my skin and cut it off. And I never told anybody, and I never did it, and I don't know to this day what stopped me. But it was, it was just, it was there. And I, and I didn't know what it was. And so Wayne is working with me on my resume, and I couldn't talk. And he was kept asking me these questions, and at one point I had to say, would you please stop, because I'm about to, to disappear here. And I didn't know that, and he didn't either. And what ended up happening is I had to write a letter to my mother and getting out all of the anger out that I was never allowed to express. That was hard. Because I would start writing, my, I would start to disassociate and have to stop, breathe a little bit. And I was doing it in red pen because use every tool you can when you have to do some, the work that we have to do is not easy. It's not something we do because it's a beautiful day and the sun's shining. Ah, oh, I'll do this. No. No. And seven pages. And I read that to Wayne, my, my dearest friend. 
and I cried. He didn't know how bad it was, and I didn't either. And once I read it, I took that letter out, and I burned it. And I let the wind take it away, and I watched it blow away because I needed to. That was one of the hardest things I've had to do. But I wanted to live, and it was getting to that point where I didn't have a choice. The only other choice was the other direction. So I got the job now. I, I, all of a sudden, these thoughts, like, I think I want to do this. Like, I think I want to be a director. I'm like, why would you even say that? Where did that come from? And so this job popped up. And I'm like, I can do that. So I sent in my resume. The, my director, my medical director, called me up, and his question was, why do you want to work here? And I, I paused, like, no one asked me to talk about me in this way before. So I told them. And they asked me to come in for an interview. And I intuitively know I was going to get that job. And it was after living sober last year. It was already in process. And I got that job and started on September 20th. You know, if I ever needed proof that we have to do the work and then the other stuff comes, that is my, I know it to be true. You know, being in these rooms is magnificent and it really sucks because the gig's up. And, you know, many things have happened since I've been in these rooms. As I said, my mother passed away and I, I had forgiven, forgiven her and I knew long ago our paths had separated. And so when I went back and was there with the family for a week. That was a long effing week. Let me tell you, my sister and my father were, it was like the, the family circuit got plugged in. But I had enough experience, strength, and hope from these rooms to take a lot of breaks. And he still misbehaved. There was a moment he, I mean, he was opening a bottle and just chugging it in front of me in front of us. There was this one point he took his hand and ran it through my hair and the eek factor is off the charts. And even at the gravesite, when we were burying my mother, he grabbed my arm and yanked me. And even then, I was like, wow, you still don't see me as an adult, do you? And it was in front of everyone, and we had to go to dinner afterwards, and I was so nauseous I couldn't eat because I was, I was so stirred up. Um, but I got through it. I walked away from that with my side of the street clean. And at this point in time, I will be goddamned if I have to make an amend to your ass. I will bite my effing tongue off. Because, you know... It's not worth it. You know, my my father, I found out this week I have a stepmother. You know, the family drama just never ends. I feel like I should call TLC and just, just show up. It's time to make some money off this, you know? It, it's gotten that crazy. He has gone, so this new woman, oh my God, you've got to hear this. So... 
you can't make this up. So, like, not enough time passed, according to my sister, and she went to see him, and he had this girl that he'd met for four years, and they were getting a credit card together, and I was like, what? And that was just the beginning of the weekend. And she kept calling me in rage, like, he's doing this and he's doing this. I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, click. And at one point, she was just going on because she, she looked like our mother. And this woman, <laughs> this is so cool. She was a heroin addict and a prostitute had done jail time. And had three holes still in her stomach. They hadn't healed yet. And my dad was just, and they met at a liquor store. Can you, I mean, match made in heaven? Yes? And so my sister's ranting and raving. And I kid you not, she said this. <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to tell you. She's like, and I think she just gave him a blowjob. And I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, she just took him into the other room. She, it took a few minutes. She came back out. She took a swish of Pepsi. And I'm like, this is, Melanie, stop, 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 stop. I can't unsee that. <laughs> You cannot make this stuff up. You can't. And so his life got interesting. He did a drive-by shooting at a house that heroin was sold at. He's done some time and had some ankle jewelry. His girlfriend did some stuff, got some ankle jewelry and broke probation and got put in jail. And it you know, it, it, it's interesting that, that this, this story keeps going, and it doesn't include me. And, you know, my sister will send me pictures of the next announcement of something that he's done. And, you know, he kept calling me. And for a while there, I felt like I was supposed to be the dutiful son and pick up the phone and listen, right? Like a good Al-Anon. Oh, I'll listen. I'll be good. I'll be the good person. <clears throat> that just doesn't work. And so... You know, at one point I thought, why am I doing this? I don't want to talk to him, and there's nothing I have to give him, and he's drunk when he calls me. So I hung up the phone, and I stopped answering. You know, in al we learn we have choices, whether we acknowledge them or not, and we always have more than one. You know, it got to the point where I just, I blocked him. And that gave me a lot of peace of mind. And my sister would report from time to time some egregious thing he'd done. And it's like, and I could hear how wound up she's, she was getting. I'm like, girl, you need a room. And the most recent was a couple of months ago. I got a text. I forget even what he said. But I texted back. We're not going to talk until you've been a year in AA and you've started Al-Anon. And he said, fuck you. And I said, and now we're done. That felt good. And it was clean. Because I will be goddamned. I will bite my damn tongue off. Because it's not worth making an amend over that. You know, life looks a lot different. I remember when I first started seeing color. I was going down this road and it, it was I took an antidepressant. I didn't know that... When you walk into an elevator and feel like your heart's pounding, that's not normal. I didn't know. I didn't know I was so depressed that I was not seeing color in the world. And I was back in Boston driving to work, and I kept noticing these 
really beautiful bushes that were fuchsia. And I'm like, wow, they must have just planted those. And I'd see it again. I'm like, another house? Wow. And by the third house, I'd realize they've been there the whole time. I never saw them. You know, that's how dead I was. And, wow, you know, Al-Anon has given me a lot. It's given me a place to come and understand myself. It's given me a voice to live in a world of crazy people, sometimes including myself. Um, I don't, the news about my father this week was like, oh yeah, so we got married. You know, it's the next episode. You know, I actually do wish him well. And from time to time, I do pray for him. And I do that for me. Because I want to keep letting him go. My sister's relationship and I, she takes these long breaks, like a year. And all of a sudden, she'll want to talk again. And I find myself this time saying, I'm kind of done. This has nothing to do with me. I love her. She's my only sister. She's the only family that I really connect with. But I, because of this room, I know to give her space. Does it hurt? Yeah. Sometimes I cry about it. I miss her. I miss her a lot. Because we, she shares my history. She remembers. And you know, I pray for her. There was... Back in December, she was calling. She was talking shit about her wife's family. And, oh, yeah, and we were on our way to an Al-Anon meeting. And I went, and I didn't say anything. It's not my business. Whether, it does, whether or not she does, that belongs to her. But I've never been more fully myself. And that's really cool. I found that I have a sense of humor in the rooms. Some of you have enjoyed it. I heard myself laugh for the first time. I was at, I was in a cafeteria in a mall back in Boston, and this friend I was with told, said something. I don't remember what she said, and I started laughing. And she said, Rob, Rob, stop, it's echoing. And I started laughing even louder. And I looked over, and someone was staring, and my face turned crimson. That was the first time I'd heard my laugh. I'd never heard it before. Now, I laugh all the time. And I laugh with my staff. I crack jokes all the time. Why not? Laughter to me is precious. Because if I can find a way to laugh about something, I know I can get through it. You know, I have some difficult staff at work. And... What I'm finding I'm doing is I'm giving them program all they would, they would never know it. That's the, on Thursday, there were some things that were going on, and I sat down with one of the clinics, five different staff, and we talked about boundaries and how to place a boundary with a particular person. Didn't mention their name, just talked about the boundary setting. I gave that to them. You know, I would not be alive without this program. I would not. And... I'm, I think about my first, my first sponsor, um, Elaine. She was the one who I called when, when my father had threatened me again. And I don't know how I told her, but I did. She's long since passed. And those women and those 
some of them I know have gone on. Um, but I carry them with me. I carry them with me every day because those women gave me unconditional love, although I didn't know what to call it. And it is a joy to give it away. You know, that when I see newcomers, it's beautiful because I can hear where they're at. You know, people in the meetings that I go to, I act a mess. I do. But I have fun. Why not? Being in a room does not mean I have to sit here and be glum. I No. I get to be the life of the party. I have a huge personality, in case you didn't know. I can fill a room, but in a really good way. And I, I love who I am. And I love who I'm becoming, because that's not stock. I love who I'm becoming. And... Yeah, that's all I got. Thank you.